It's a tag team thing here, right? Thank you, Genesis. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It is a blessing to be able to worship like we get to worship here. It is a blessing to me every time. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for all the preparation. Thank you for turning it up and letting us hear it. Thank you for uh, deciding that Lauren Daigle is going to be sung because I love Lauren Daigle. She is the most likely artist to be heard loudly in the hallway. If I'm in my office by myself on a Sabbath morning, she can get loud in our building. Thank you. We have come to uh, an end of a discussion we've been having about the resurrection. Um, I have been, I've been arguing for this entire time that the resurrection resets everything, changes everything. That prior to the resurrection, this is just a story, a story of a family that grew up out of the Middle East and a family that was enslaved and then freed and then lots of interesting things happened and everybody claimed that it was God. But after Jesus showed up, everything changed. When Jesus walked the paths on the earth and demonstrated for us the character and heart of God, everything changed. When that same being, fully man, fully God, chose to allow himself to be hung on a cross. Everything changed. When he entered the tomb, a sort of darkness fell over the place, literally and figuratively. And when he came out, nothing would ever be the same. What Israel had been doing what Adam and Eve had been doing, what the sanctuary system was teaching, what the prophets were preaching had been pointing to that crucifixion and been promising a resurrection. When the psalm that was to be the one Jesus sang on the cross was written, it told both of the abandonment that sin caused in the separation of even Jesus from the Father, and it told of the victory that would ultimately be His. In our spiritual lives, in the life we live, in the walk we make across the planet during our days, if the resurrection is not understood, we're just wandering. But if the resurrection is real to you and me, it is the proof of the promise. It is the proof that what has been offered to us by the prophets, even by the historical records of the sanctuary system itself, by the disciples, by the apostles, It is the proof that there is hope after we close our eyes. That there is cleansing from the wages of sin. And that everything is different now. Today I want to talk to you about whether or not we are pilgrims or tourists. 
You know, when you go into a foreign country, you come there to the, uh, to the immigration uh, counter and you, you stand there before a person usually in a uniform that's looking a little stern behind glass with a little slot that you can slide things through. And you come into that immigration moment. You finally get to your point in line after it seems like millennia of waiting. You get there and you take your little passport. You open it up to the page that they tell you to open it up to because you're doing what you're told. And you slide it over to them. And they pick it up. And they look at your passport. And they look at you. And they look at your passport. And they look at you. They usually tell me to take my hat off. Because I almost always am wearing one. And they look at me. They put it down. They say, what is the nature of your visit? What is the nature of your visit? Because why are you here is not a very nice question. What are you doing here? What is the nature of your visit? I have been a tourist in a lot of places in the world. I almost always answer that question the same way. What is the nature of your visit? It's either business or tourism. Those are the only two answers I've ever given. What would happen if I said pilgrimage? I wonder if they would make me go into some back room and be searched. I am here on a pilgrimage. I have been to Israel. I have been blessed to have been to Israel more than once. The first time I was in Israel, it was full-on tourism ablaze. I mean, I was taking pictures of everything that I could. I had intentions to bring those pictures back and share with the church family. I had intentions of having those pictures in the record of my life that I had been to some places that were significant scripturally. I was full-on tourist, and a lot of my time was spent like this. And I have the pictures. They're old now and they're fuzzier than my camera pictures now, but I have the pictures. Mount Sinai, Bethlehem, Galilee, Capernaum. But in all of that trip, it was a long trip. In all of that trip, everything was tourist except for one moment on one day. Everything in the trip, I think it was 19 days, was tourist except for one moment in one day. If you travel to to Israel, I hope you will if you haven't. There's a sense of the place. There's a realism of scripture after you've been standing there in those places. But I remember the day, I remember it so clearly. In fact, the last time I was in Israel, I tried to repeat it and couldn't make it happen. Because sometimes the experience is the experience, not to be repeated. We were walking through the old city of Jerusalem. We were, we were actually following what is known as the Trail of Jesus. We don't know for sure, but it's been depicted as that trail. And we had kind of worked our way through everything and they set us free. You know, we got off the tour, and we were now. They now said, "Okay, you can spend some time in this area, kind of looking around and 
shopping. I did some shopping. A friend of mine, Glenn Sayers, if you want to go and get a bargain anywhere in the world, please just grab Glenn and take him with you because he will make it worth your while. I wanted to bring back communion cups for all of the church, which at the time was 100 communion cups. And I went in asking for communion cups, and this guy wanted, I don't remember what it was, two or three bucks a piece. And I'm thinking, man, okay, but... Uh. And Glenn was at the same time negotiating for a, I think it was a sheep, to add to his uh, display, his, his Christmas display. He had bought, bought one, and he wanted another sheep for it. And there was a sheep in there, and this guy had one that would match in olive wood and all of that. And so Glenn was negotiating with him about that. And when Glenn found out I wanted these cups, he took up my cause. By the time I left there, the guy sold me a box of cups for like 20 bucks. But just outside that shop, literally steps away from this guy's front door, was a Roman road. You can tell the difference between an ancient Roman road and a modern road, particularly in Israel. Modern roads have small pavers in them. They're no bigger than about this much, this big. A lot of them are smaller. But the Roman roads have big pavers. I don't know what the rest of the stone looks like, but the tops are often 18 inches, even two feet square or roughly. It's rutted. It's worn. Most of these rocks are pretty slick. And as I walked out onto this Roman road, an intersection where I think it was five roads, five little streets came into this one kind of corridor, passageway, where these streets would meet up and go. It was all walking traffic, so you weren't walking out into traffic. You walked out onto that road and was drawn to a stop. Because for just a second, I stopped being a tourist. Because I realized that if this is a Roman road, this was here when Jesus was here. Now, I'd traveled all over town and all over the, the, the country of Israel, and they kept telling me Jesus was there, and Jesus was here, and Jesus was over there. And it was cool, and it was possible, and it was probable, really. But now I was standing on something uh, that I could prove, I could demonstrate historically, was here when Jesus was there. And for some reason, that street crossed over in my mind. And I just stopped and stood there for a minute. I looked around. That were clearly buildings that had been built since the first century. I realized I was standing on the same ground on which Jesus had stood. That my feet were in a place where Jesus had very likely lain footprints. Changes things. Because my belief in Jesus, my faith in Jesus, changed the experience of the moment just standing out there on a road where hundreds of people passed. There were, I don't know, 80 in that group that I was with. But for me, that's the moment I changed from tourist to pilgrim. The Apostle Peter calls the first century church that's been dispersed among the the states 
of the empire of Rome? The pilgrims. Peter says, this letter that I'm writing to you is a letter written for the pilgrims of the dispersion. Children, the, the, the church had been run out of their homes. They'd been forced out into places all over the country, all over the empire. Some of them were there in Jerusalem when the temple was destroyed and they had to be run out of town for that purpose, for that because of it. Some of them had been thrown out of Rome by Claudius because he just didn't want to deal with the Christians there in town anymore. Some had been persecuted under Nero and had fled to keep to, from dying. And they'd been dispersed and dispersed and dispersed and dispersed. And he calls them pilgrims because a pilgrim goes to the next place, not carrying the old place, but carrying something in themselves that has been transformed by their faith. I know people take pilgrimages to all kinds of things. Uh, I was once in France, and someone in our group took a pilgrimage to the gravesite of some old rock stars, and I kind of was not into it. It's like, okay. And they took pictures, and they brought some back, and there were, there were like candles and flowers, and people had gone there to pay honor to that person. And it's like, okay. But I do want to remind you that what you believe changes the outcome of your experience. Tourism is sort of the, the experience of a person who's gone to a place without a belief, wealth, without the intent of being changed. And a person who loves a rock star so much that they'll make a pilgrimage to his grave is often changed by the experience, crazy as you may think it is. Because they believe there's something there. And they come back saying, wow, it it made a difference in my life to be there. As believers in Jesus and in his resurrection, I would argue that as we move through life, we're not just tourists. We're not just tourists. Because we're not here just taking pictures and leaving footprints. We're here taking pictures and marking a pathway. We're here making memories and experiences and marking a pathway. The tourist comes and writes on the wall, John was here. The pilgrim comes and sits by the wall and says, Jesus was here. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we open your word together, you will pour into us the things that will change our faith, encourage our belief, And give us new eyes to see our world. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to 
walk you through some things that will orient you, I think. For those of you under the age of 25, this is a map. These things were printed by people in the millions for old guys like me to learn to fold up perfectly so that your father wasn't mad at you when you shoved it back in the glove box of the car and take out furtively and find the state of Nebraska, or in this case, California, and know where you were at any minute in time because we're traveling down the highway, and you are Google Maps. I love these things. I like this a whole lot better than this much screen. I think this much screen as a map is an abomination because you're not oriented to anything. You're just waiting for a little voice to say, turn left. And you hope the little voice will warn you at two miles and at a half a mile instead of just waiting until you get to the turn to tell you to turn because you're going to miss your turn. But if you have one of these, hours before you have to turn, you can know where you're going to turn. That gives solace to an old man's heart who likes to be in the left lane long before he has to turn left. A couple of miles would be good because I don't want to have to turn left too quickly in front of somebody else and have them honk at me with good reason as I would have honked at them. Map. Learn about them. Beautiful things. They can still be purchased. You too could have one in your car. This device orients you. Look, you're looking at half of California from Fresno to the Oregon border. And what happens beyond the border does not matter. That's why it's not on the map. They think you might need to get to Reno, so they put it on the map. If you wanted to get to Fresno from here, this will tell you how. You know why? Because it orients you. It helps you know where you are in relationship to where you're going. Okay? Beliefs. The beliefs we hold, even the ones that are wrong, orient us. Last week we talked about there was a group that believed this in Colossia, there's a group that believed this in Colossia. Paul said, just believe Jesus, guys. Orienting. That's what I'd like to do over the next few minutes. Some orienting facts. Number one, fact number one. Orienting fact number one. God is love. John would tell the, the, the early church, he would tell them that, that this newly born, apostolically birthed church... God is love. That is the simplest description of God. That's the best I can tell you. You want to know who God is? You want to know what God is like? You want to know what motivates God? You want to know what makes God tick? What makes God have fun in the world? God is love. He's all about love. And that one fact is a solid, foundational, orienting fact. It's like the the little N on the map that says, that way's north. Once you understand that, everything else starts to make sense. By the way, that way's north. If you're lost right now, that way's north. That way's south, because south is always the opposite of north. 
This much doesn't tell you things like that. God is love is the anchor upon which all of Christianity is founded. It is the anchor upon which all of Scripture is founded. It is the answer. It is the root answer to every question you ask about the nature of God. The first thing you should say when you say, well, why did this happen? What was up with that? You should start with, well, if God is love, then... Because the interpretation has to take into, this, into its account that primary fact. That primary story. Secondly, God is the creator. Hebrews tells us this. When you're looking at that story about faith, and everybody loves to read the, the, all the people of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, it starts out with, without faith it is impossible to believe God, because in order to have faith, you have to believe that God exists. It starts out with these simple facts about the existence of God and then moves to his creatorship. The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. That's it. That's the story. God is love and he started it and he created everything. What would be his motivation for creating? If you had to answer the question with these two facts in mind, what would be God's motivation for creating? Everybody's being awfully quiet. I've only given you two facts. One of them is that he created. The other other fact is what? God is love. So what would be the reason that God would create? It's got to have something to do with his love, right? It has to have something to do with the primary definer of his character. God is love. God created the heavens and the earth. I don't think this thing's working very well. Anna, help. I'm just going to watch. There we go. It's up there. It's just not up there. There we go. Sorry. God knew about sin. God is love. God is the creator. God knew about sin. God is love. God is the creator. God knew about sin. Okay. If you knew that your kid was going to be a problem, they were going to be mad, mean, hard on you, they were going to do bad things, would you have prevented them from existing? Some people do. Here's the deal, though. When you take that child, mamas, when you take that child, the doctor hands it to you for the first time, right? It's still gross and messy and got all kinds of stuff on it. And they hand it to you. I've only seen a few births. I was... Asleep through one of them, not by choice. But the look on a mother's face when they take their baby for the first time is almost, in my experience, is always the same. All the pain of the previous moments, they're, they're, they're just, these ladies have been through a lot. 
I'm, as a man in that situation, you have a couple of thoughts. It's like, oh, goodness, how in the world did you just manage to survive that? And, oh, man, I'm glad I'm not a girl. It's true. It's what we think. But when they hand you that baby, all the angst and the anguish and the suffering, you just, you just forget it. It's like the doctor's not sewing you together. And you just hold this baby, you cuddle it up to you, you lay it on your chest. And there's this bond that's happening when you see this moment. It's like, wow, look at that. Dads, they usually clean them up before they give them to us because they don't want us to drop them. They're a little slippery. Say, wipe them down a little bit, usually wrap them in a blanket, hand them over. They'll say things to you like, hold it like a football. And you look at it. You stare into the face of what was just an imaginary thing a minute ago. And now is living, breathing person. If you took a minute to think sort of the broad strokes of life, you might say, this thing is going to be 13 someday. And that's not going to be fun. This, this, is going to, this, this little being is going to drive someday. I can't imagine that. This person is going to look up at me someday and say, I hate you. None of that crosses your mind. You just stand there holding this five, six, seven, eight pounds of humanity and fall in love. If that's what you, the human, broken as you are, experience, don't you have a little tiny glimpse into the answer to this question? He knew about sin. Before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy before him. (laughs) Because in our own merit and status, we are not. You see, God sees the end from the beginning and so he saw that sin would come, that the choice would be made and some one of these kids would look up into the sky and shake their fist and say, I hate you. And still he did it. And still he chose us, still motivated by love. But the world looks at this and they say, given all the tragedies of our planet, given the wars and the struggles and the, the horrible things that man does to man and has done through, to man historically, Ivan the Terrible is called Ivan the Terrible for a reason. Horrible things have happened through history and unrepentant people have done those things. How could a loving God still choose to make man in the face of that?
it's a pretty, pretty simple, complicated answer. In order for us to love him back, we had to be able to choose to love him. In order for us to be in relationship with him, we had to be able to choose not to be in relationship with him. A person who is forced into a relationship is not in a relationship. And so in spite of the knowledge that we would choose the wrong thing, a father who loved humanity said, I'm going to give you a choice. And in the garden, it was a simple choice. There's a tree. I want you to trust me about this. That isn't the tree you want. Don't eat of that tree. When you, when you do, if you do, you will die. I know that's hard for you to understand, but that's the deal. Just don't eat from Trust me, you don't want to eat that tree. We know the story. They did it anyway. But it had to be allowed because a God who loves created a man who would sin, gave him the choice so that he could love back. A God who loves created a man who would sin, gave him the choice to do that so that he could love back. Because God values your choice, your freedom to choose probably more than you do. And he could see all the things that we would do And he still chose to allow us freedom so that we might ultimately be able to love him back. The reason I'm trying to lay out this reorienting map is because there are so many things that are thrown out there as answers and philosophies about these things that are just, they sound logical, but they don't get at the biblical answer. I understand the frustration of the atheistic person who says, I can't believe in a God who would allow man to choose sin. But what the person doesn't understand is that this is the God who allowed man to choose love. And sin was a side effect. This is a God who allowed man to choose love. And sin is a side effect. And as we pass through the world, if we remind ourselves that God is allowing us day after day after day after day as we take our next step to choose love, to choose Him, or to walk away and ignore Him, Every day. Perhaps sometime we'll stop for a minute. We'll sit under a tree. We'll look up at the sky. We'll look into the face of our child. And we'll realize what an amazing gift 
love is. But as we sit under that oak tree and look up, it is a gift from a God who loves. As we sit at the table and we put our fork into our food, it is a gift from a God who loves. As we feel the embrace of our child, the same child who yesterday hated us, and we feel their arms around us and their, their chest against us and our hearts beat together, we realize it is a gift. And to love and be loved is the ultimate gift. And that child had to be able to choose to do what they just did or it meant nothing. And the fact that they chose That's the beauty, the power, the glory of experiencing love. It's why you had to be able to choose. Because if God made you into some kind of robot who came every day and wrapped your arms around him and said, I love you. It would mean nothing. But the fact that you and I could choose to hate him, and we still chose to love him, even if we waffle in and out of that choice, it's the same experience, it's the same fact multiplied by a, a, by a number that can only represent God. But it's the same reality when you and I choose him. And then we stop for a minute and we realize what that means. We're not a tourist anymore. Because it gives meaning and purpose to life. That tourism can't. God made the choice when he created us, the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, chose the cross, grew the stinking tree that would be the cross, gave breath to the men who would nail him to the cross, buried the iron in the ground that they would use for the nails. In every instance, he could have chosen something else. And because of the joy of reunion with the child who would one day be free from sin and stand before God and be grateful and be in love with him. For that joy, he said, I'll do that. He volunteered to do that. 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, I I, want to stop you for a second because I know the human brain jumps off this train all the time. Don't get he made him stuck in your head. Jesus says, no one makes me give my life. I give it myself. I choose. Don't separate God and Jesus as if they're not part of the same being. If the same being makes the choice for another reflection of the same being, it's still the same mind making the same choice. That's why Jesus could endure the cross for the joy set before him. And here he could become sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be the, become the righteousness of God that is in him. We're back to our friend Peter. In God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You see that resurrection thing really does change everything. We have a hope that we don't have of a restoration of a relationship that we broke because the tomb is empty. We have a hope that Paul would describe in Corinthians that the physical body that is bound to the earth and bound by death can be released from both the earth and death because of the resurrection of Jesus. That the wages of sin were paid by Him so that the man who chooses to be covered by Him could find eternal life through Him. That the wages of sin were paid by Him so that the man or woman who chooses to be covered by Him could have eternal life through Him. It's the basic fact, and everything else is a doctrinal description of everything else. We have a tendency to, to, to major in the minors, and so we make the doctrines about what everything's about, and they're, they're good expressions of direction for life. They're, they're the finer points of the map pointing us in the direction of, of San Francisco instead of Fresno, or to stop in Oakland before you go across the Bray Bridge and All of those bits and pieces are helpful information, but the fact, the important thing, is that you understand the whole picture, the big picture, the reorienting knowledge that Jesus Christ died for mankind to pay the wages of our choice and give us an opportunity for a new life. End of story. And that when he made man, he made this plan. Before the first foundations of the earth were laid, this plan was in order. Before God began to create free choice in beings who had the ability to choose, He made this plan. To do any less, to do any less 
would prove that he is a manipulator and a liar. To not allow free choice would prove that a being of supreme power is nothing more than a manipulator and a liar. Sin is a hard thing to watch. From our perspective, how much harder from God's perspective? The one being in the universe that could have stopped Hitler and no one would have known. The one being in the universe that could have stopped the crucifixion. The one being in the universe that could have done away with the problem of sin and nobody would have known. But it would have demonstrated that he was a liar. That no one really had free choice. And that love was a fake. But what he did... left love as a premium and free choice as the only access point. Because that's true. Because that's the character of God. Because love is the ultimate expression of that character. His choice to give us choice allows us to love him back. So Jesus comes to the earth, humbles himself and becomes a man. Demonstrates who God is. And he walks among us. In John chapter 1, he became flesh and walked among us. He didn't come as a tourist just to see what was going on, take some snapshots and head home. He came as a pilgrim. The key fact of the Old Testament Scripture is a pilgrimage. It's the Exodus. The key fact of the New Testament Scripture is a pilgrimage. That God became a man and walked among us. And he demonstrated the way home. He lived a life we could replicate. He lived a life we could follow. And he died to give us the choice to do that. J. Brett Bill says, Pilgrims leave footprints to say I was here. And I moved on. I walked by here and I kept going. Jesus came and he he walked by here and he kept going. He went to the cross and kept going. He went into the tomb and kept going. And I hope someday you'll You'll be able to go and stand in those places. It'll be awesome. It'll be cool. But go as a pilgrim. Go as one who's seeking to understand the footprints of Jesus and walk through them more more real, more tangibly than maybe you can anywhere else on the planet. But, But if you never do, be changed 
by what you've learned to know and believe about God. That the events of your life, no matter how hellish, don't leave you abandoned by Him. That the facts of today don't move God off His throne. That the realities of my problems don't have me abandoned by Him. Because he loves me more than that. And that his entire goal is to get me back home. The craziest thing in the whole plan, the thing that's unbelievable about the plan, is that God left the whole thing in our hands. The, tr- the, the song that Genesis sang says, when you don't move the mountains, I need you to move. I will trust you. When I don't get the answers to the prayer that I'd hoped for, I will trust you. I will choose to believe you love me when the circumstances don't demonstrate it. And the outcomes of those crazy choices, choices that run contrary to our human nature, is a demonstration that that we were here and we moved on. That we came up against something that could have broken us and we moved on. That by faith, we chose to follow God, not only in the good, but also in the difficult. At the end of the day, I want to challenge you to be a pilgrim. And to leave footprints that someone else might follow. If you should end your life before Jesus returns, the best heritage you could leave behind is a faith that says to those who follow, I was here once. I lost something I treasured. I was heartbroken. It nearly destroyed me. But I believed that God loved me. And in that faith and in that belief, I moved on. If you find yourself There's a way out. I found it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you that Jesus found himself falling into death 
by faith in the knowledge of your love and of your plan. We moved on. Lord, some of us are having tough days right now. Some of us are struggling with our faith. Help us to choose when there's nothing left but a choice. When we can't see the other side of the darkness, to still choose to trust in you. Amen.